Renee, would you like to come read? Okay. Thank you. All right, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Got your Bibles? All right. If you have your e-Bible, that'll work as well, but we're going to go to a couple different passages this morning. So if you have a paper Bible, it might help see a little bit more context, so I'd recommend you do that. Um, Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you as your children, as your creation, as those that are made in your image. We come before you as children looking to their dad that we know is a good father. And Lord, now we ask you, please, please teach us. Please instruct us. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify our hearts. Help us to believe the truth that we hear this morning from your word. God, I pray that there wouldn't just be, we wouldn't just be smarter when we leave here. I pray that we wouldn't just have more knowledge in our heads. But God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. Help us to love you more because of our time together this morning. Help us to believe you more because of our time together this morning. We need you to work. And so, Lord, I pray as I speak and as we hear, God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that your name would be glorified for your honor and for your praise alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, go ahead and open your Bible up to Psalm 32, if you haven't already. And I want to start this morning just by asking a very simple question that it's not, uh, it's not extra deep, so just think about it the way it comes, how it lands on you. You ready? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be happy? It's not a trick question. Think about it in your head for a minute. Do you want to be happy? It's a question I've thought about a lot, actually, in studying this psalm. And the more that I've studied it and read about it and even just thought, the more that I'm convinced that I think pretty much everyone 
wants to be happy. I think it's something that's built inside of us. I think that deep down we are motivated even by the desire to be happy. Just a couple examples I was thinking about, like in my own life, I went to college and to go to college wasn't that easy for me. I had to pay a lot of money, had to study hard, had to stay up late, had to give up other things that I wanted. It doesn't sound like I was trying to be happy in that moment, but even doing something hard like that and expensive like that was ultimately because I thought that maybe having a good job would make me more happy than not having a good job. Or Perhaps making your parents proud would make you feel happier than making your parents disappointed. Or being seen as successful would make you more happy than not being successful. And it's not necessarily just good things or bad things. Certainly bad things. The kid that takes the cookie from the cookie jar when he's not supposed to, in that moment, I think he believes that having that cookie will make him more happy than not having that cookie. Right? Pretty much everything we do in some way, I think, is connected to our motivation to want to be happy. Even stuff that we lay aside for ourselves, sacrificing for our children, is ultimately because we want to see our children do well or succeed or grow in the Lord, and we will feel joy from doing that. Happiness motivates us. Happiness drives us. And just want to start off the bat by saying, I don't think that's a bad thing. In fact, I would say that I believe that God created us to be motivated by being happy. We are supposed to want to be happy. The problem is, despite the fact that we're born wanting to be happy, we're also born under sin. And sin has caused us to want to be happy, but not know where our happiness is found, or not know how to be happy. We have this desire and this motivation to be happy and to chase happiness and to hear what other people say is happy or will make us more happy. But we actually, at our core, because of sin, we don't know what gives us true happiness. So thankfully, though, God tells us how to be happy. Before we even get into Psalm, I just say, as a, as a general rule, this book, God's Word written for us, this book tells you how to be happy. If you're looking for happiness, if you're looking for satisfaction, if you're looking for that answer of like, well, how do I be happy? What is that? God's word tells us that because God built us to want to be happy. And God also knows that our happiness is found in him. He's the missing ingredient that we don't have by default because of sin. God knows that in him, true happiness is found. So I want to start before we even get into Psalm 32 by just proclaiming to you that God is not anti-happy. I think there's kind of like this feeling sometimes in Christian circles that God wants us to be miserable all the time or unhappy or to be constantly unsatisfied. But that's not what God teaches us time and time again throughout Scripture. And this morning in Psalm 32, we're going to go to a very specific passage where God blatantly tells us, if you want to be happy, here is a way to be happy. Here is something that produces happiness. So look with me at the beginning of Psalm 32. We're going to start right in on verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, blessed, you could translate that directly as happy. So when you're reading this passage, you could just substitute happy in instead of blessed. We don't speak often that way of blessed. So you could say, verse 1, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
It's a statement. It's a matter of fact. If you want to know about true happiness, if you want to know a source of happiness, if you believe that God knows his stuff, then in God's word, he tells us this very simple fact. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now, I'll just warn you, I'm going to vamp on this verse for a couple moments. And as I do, Christian, if you've heard this before, I encourage you, don't tune out. Don't just say, oh, yeah, 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 I know that's true. I encourage you, think about this. Listen to this. Because in order for us to truly, I think, experience the happiness that comes from being forgiven, we have to first understand what we have been forgiven of. You see, sin is what we've been forgiven of. All of us, every person that's ever breathed, has been under the curse of sin. We are sinners because of our great, 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 bunch more greats, grandfather Adam, who we learned about in Genesis. He disobeyed God. And in disobeying God, he rejected God as God. And in doing so, he brought sin and death into mankind. And from that point on, every single child that's ever been born has been born a sinner, has been born in opposition to God, not able to do anything pleasing in God's sight, tainted, covered, ingrained with sin in our very nature. And just to prove it, just in case you're like, well, but babies, they seem so innocent, just to prove it, that we are in fact sinners, we have sinned personally every single day since we have been born. We sin and we can't help it. And that's evidence of the curse that is in us. That's evidence of our rebellion against the God of the universe. That's evidence of the fact that we stand opposed to God at our core as sinners. We've not done the things that God has told us and commanded us to do. And we do the things that God tells us not to do. The attributes of God, we've been studying about that some as we sing, the attributes of God that are reserved for him alone, like God's all-knowing and God's all-powerfulness. We want those things. We want to be all-knowing. We want to be all-powerful. And the things that God tells us, or his attributes to be shared that we're supposed to have as well, like his love and his grace, his forgiveness, we reject those things and we don't do them. We are in a terrible state by default. Because of sin, we are standing opposed to the God of the universe. Let that settle in for a moment. We stand opposed to the only high king of all the universe and the cosmos and beyond. That is our plight. That's our state. But God, but God offers salvation. God offers hope to the sinner that I just described. And it's the reason we're gathered here this morning. It's what we sang about. To that sinner, to that person who shakes their fist at God, who by nature is opposed to him, God offered his son, Jesus Christ, as the perfect sacrifice who lived on the earth a sinless life. The only human to ever be born and not show evidence of a sin nature because he was perfect. He was not sinful. He was sinless. He was God himself. And Jesus lived and died 
on the cross, he bore the full fury that we deserved. That punishment for us rebelling against God and saying, we don't want you as God. We could be better gods than you. Jesus took the wrath of God in our place. And as we've talked about multiple times, you picture the t-shirt analogy that Matt has used often. We get the righteousness that Jesus had. Jesus' righteousness was given to us as if we were righteous. And all the wrath that we deserved for the sin and the darkness that was on us was instead placed on Jesus on our behalf. So that today, as believers in Jesus, we can stand before God as righteous, as holy. Me, the person that deserved the wrath of God for all of eternity. Me, the person who didn't do anything to step toward God to earn his favor. We, Christians, are now in God's favor. We are now a part of his family. We are no longer seen as against God. And that is by God's grace alone, through his Son, Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) And that is why verse 1 says, Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. How can you not be happy hearing news like that? I should be right now having to try to set you people down from standing up on your chairs and launching off of them out of excitement and joy and shouting. What greater gift have we been given? What more do we have to be joyful about than our number one biggest problem that we had no hope of solving, by the way, has been completely solved for us? And so before we go any further beyond verse 1, I think we have to start and just say, Ooh, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. My transgression has been forgiven. I'm happy that my transgression has been forgiven. I agree with you, David. Yes, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. God counts no iniquity against us. This is permanent, grounded happiness. This is happiness that can't go away. You might have felt a little bit of happiness when you ate that donut and then immediately felt very unhappy, maybe, <laughs> in your stomach. Or maybe, uh, you know, when you look in the mirror later. God's forgiveness is not like happiness that comes from a donut. God's happiness from forgiveness, as described here this morning, is supernatural, all-encompassing, never-changing, never-ending, never-getting-old happiness. 1,000 years from now, we will still be able to talk and sing and praise about the fact that I just shared that our happiness is made complete and full in the forgiveness that we found in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's never going to get old, church. And this morning, as I was sharing that, as I talked about sin and that sin being forgiven, being cleansed, God counting no iniquity, Maybe this morning you're hearing me and that sounds really good. That you agree with David and say, yeah, the person who has all their sins forgiven, they, they would be really happy. But that can't be for me. Maybe this morning, even as I just talk about sins and the idea of forgiveness, maybe you just felt a dark cloud on you. Maybe memories start to come up of past sins committed, sins that are gross, 
that are embarrassing, that are shameful. Maybe things we've done that nobody else knows. Or maybe things that we know that have hurt many, many people and have rippled way outside of just us. Maybe as I talk about forgiveness, you think that's all well and good, but there's no way it could be for you this morning. Well, I think there's hope even in that or truth that combats that lie, which it is a lie. If we just notice for a moment who wrote this psalm, I think even in that was God's kindness to us. Not all the psalms tell us who wrote them. It was preserved for us, but Psalm 32 was. Psalm 32 was written by whom? David. And if we just rest for a moment and think about David and his life, I think we can bring to mind some sin that David had experienced and had played an active part in. King David, among other things, lusted after a woman that was not his wife. He took her and had an affair with her, likely even raped her, got her pregnant, and then out of desperation of not being able to conceal his sin, he then murdered her husband. And this just wasn't a one moment, 30 seconds, made a bad choice sort of a moment. This was prolonged over months. This was premeditated. This was calculated. This was purposeful sin. David is the one that just wrote, happy is the person whose sins are forgiven. And church, this would remind us all of that, that our sins have been completely taken away because of Jesus. Our sins have been completely covered because of Jesus. You see, Jesus is greater than our sins. We just talked about it last week, that Jesus exists outside of time, and our sins are limited by time. Jesus is God. God is greater than any sin that we could commit. And Jesus is the one that died for our sins. Jesus is the one that took the wrath for our sins. There is no sin that is greater than Jesus. There is no combination of sins that come together that are sins that God cannot forgive. It was covered by Jesus. And I, and I love this. Go ahead and flip over to your Bible to, into, into Colossians 2. It'll also be on the screen, but I think it helps for us just to look at it in your Bible, if you have your Bible. Colossians 2. In Colossians 2, this is Paul talking, and Paul is talking about our new life as Christians, as believers. And specifically, Paul is going to talk about our trespasses. He's going to talk about our trespasses that have been forgiven. And I love Colossians 2, 13 and 14, because I think this is one of the most concise, most succinct Places in Scripture where it talks about the state of our sin before God, the record that we have before God. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Let that soak in. And you who were dead in your trespasses. So if you did have a sin that kind of floated across your brain radar while I was talking, or if you felt heaviness, or if you felt condemnation, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That's Jesus. Listen to this next part. 
having forgiven us all our trespasses. Did you catch that? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's past tense. That's complete. Jesus has forgiven us all our trespasses, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It's been canceled, been struck from the record. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The record of debt that we had, the sin that we had, the transgression that we had against God has been completely forgiven. Completely forgiven. Record of debt has been canceled. It's been paid in full. It's been thrown aside and it's been nailed to the cross. We have been forgiven all of our trespasses if we are believers in Jesus Christ because he has accomplished it all. Church, I want to encourage you this morning to believe this good news. Believe it. Believe that truth. Preach that truth to yourself. Tell it over and over and over and over again. All my trespasses have been forgiven. The record of debt that I had against God, that ledger, it doesn't exist anymore. It's been paid in full. It's been cast aside and it's been nailed to the cross. It's done. It's complete. It's finalized. And because of that, we can celebrate with David also when he says, happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Boom. Complete. Accomplished. God's forgiveness produces happiness. But verse 2 of Psalm 32 introduces something that can steal away our happiness. We get a little bit more depth, a little bit more information just from blesses the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's what we've talked about so far. And then he adds this, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Deceit meaning like lying. In whose spirit, in whose heart there is no lying. So point number one, sorry, I think I skipped past, I didn't tell you. Point number one, forgiveness produces happiness. Forgiveness produces happiness. Point number two, though, is just introduced in verse two, is deceit steals our happiness. Forgiveness produces happiness. Deceit steals happiness. Deceit meaning lying. In verses 3 and 4, David gives us a personal example of what he means by this. So we're going to go ahead and keep on reading. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. David's talking about his own life and what he means by, in whose spirit there may be deceit. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. What David's talking about here is he's trying to cover his own sin. He's not acknowledging his sin. And, and you notice in verse 2 it says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. So it's not just David is speaking lies about his sin, but in his own heart David is lying about his sin before God. David's trying to cover it up. He's trying to stay silent about it. But you notice that as David's trying to stay silent about his sin, his bones are wasting away, groaning all day long. He is in misery. He is suffering. His strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And that picture, I think I can kind of get that. 
don't know if any of you have been out trying to work outside in the heat of summer before. Maryland, 100% humidity, push in 100 degrees or something like that. I remember one time in particular, I think we were working at the Hively's, and I think we were digging uh, new uh, pylons for their porch. And so, you know, it's like blistering hot, tons of humidity, and we're, we're digging these, and the sun is beating down. And I'm like on the second hole, using, you know, a manual post hole digger, I'm on the second hole, and I just start really not feeling really good. I get to the point where I can't even stretch my arms out anymore. They're my hands and my arms are cramped up so bad from sweat and the heat and trying to exert myself. Can you relate with me? We've all felt that way, I think, to some extent. We can relate with what David is saying here. His body is wasted. He's got no strength. It says his bones wasted away, almost like he doesn't have a skeleton anymore to even support himself. This is a man that is miserable. His body seems to be miserable. I think David's talking even more beyond just his body, but also his spirit is miserable. He is suffering. And notice why David was miserable. We don't have to guess. Verse 4, David says, Your hand was heavy on me. Your hand, God's hand, was heavy on David. See, God's hand is heavy on David, bringing about suffering because God would not let David be comfortable trying to conceal or hide his sin. God knows what sin really is. Ultimately, it's against God. God understands the depravity and the cancer that is sin way better than we do. And as such, like a good father, he brings discipline to his son, to David. He will not let David be comfortable while he's trying to hide his sin, while he's lying in his heart about his sin. God knows what sin, what hidden sin, what covered up sin, what silent sin will do to a person. It will destroy them. It'll be way worse than the suffering that David just described here. You think this is bad? This was just the discipline to help David come to the acknowledgement of his sin. This wasn't the punishment for David's sin. This wasn't the judgment for David's sin. This is God's hand being heavy on David for sin that David is trying to hide and trying to conceal. I think it's awesome that last week, in God's kindness, not pre-planned, we learned and studied from the book of Job about suffering. And in learning about suffering in Job, we saw an interaction with God and Satan and Job, a righteous man, In that case, was Job being disciplined for hidden sin? Last week, was Job being disciplined for hidden sin? No. Not described in the book of Job at all. In fact, Job had friends that came to him and said, you're hiding your sin, that's why God is bringing the suffering to you. Were Job's friends right in that circumstance? No, they were wrong. Job was suffering apart from hidden sin. He didn't have hidden sin in him. And some of you this morning may be suffering in that same way. God brings trials into our lives, sometimes very prolonged, sometimes not ending while on this earth. Even Jesus told his disciples, expect to suffer. Expect to suffer for my name's sake. And so we as believers, we expect suffering and trial as being just believers in Jesus and followers of God. But what David is experiencing here is a different type of suffering. 
Because David's suffering is a result of his sin. David's suffering is from God's hand being heavy on him to cause him to recognize the sin that's in his heart that David won't acknowledge. And so, yes, not all suffering is from wrongdoing that we have done. But I think to be faithful to Psalm 32, we can learn the lesson from David that some suffering is because we have hidden sin, or certainly could be. I think in times of suffering, in times of trials, I think it's a good thing for us to come open to the Lord and say, God, if this is sin that you're trying to show me in my heart, then show me. If it's discipline from God, then the whole point is to reveal sin so that you don't hide it anymore. God's not going to keep that from you. If the purpose is discipline, just like a father with his children, if the purpose of the discipline is to cause David to repent, cause him to be honest about his sin, then God's going to show David's sin. And so, church, I want us to hear this morning that we don't have to frantically try to identify sin that we have in order for God's hand to be removed from us if we're suffering. God will make that clear. The idea here is that David knew deep down that there was sin that he was trying to hide. He was trying to conceal it. He was trying to be silent about it. But God's hand was heavy on him so that David even knew that that's why. That's what God's discipline was to get at. But finally, we get verse 5. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Remember, this is still the example from David's life. And after much suffering and after much misery, David comes to his senses. Verse 5 says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. So previously he was not acknowledging, and he was covering. But now, David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David confesses his sin to God and immediately, immediately knows God's forgiveness. Point number three, confession releases happiness. Confession of our sin releases happiness. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of confessing sin, but confession in this context means to agree with God. To agree with God about our sin. It's calling our sin, sin. God already knows it. God sees it. To confess our sins is to agree with God that, yes, I have sinned. I'm not trying to hide it. Church, Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus paid for our sins. Jesus didn't pay for our mistakes or misunderstandings or, oh, that was just, oops, you know, or sin is sin. To confess our sins to God is in our hearts, in our spirit, to not lie about it, to not try to cover it up, to not ignore it, to not be silent about it, but to agree with God openly in communication with him that I have sinned in this way. I have sinned against you. Confession means that our hearts 
again agree with God that we have sinned and we desperately need his forgiveness. See, a follower of Jesus cannot be someone who doesn't acknowledge that they have sin. If we don't believe that we have sin, then we don't believe that we need a Savior to save us from our sin. If we don't believe we have a Savior to save us from our sin, then what are we saved from? As believers in Jesus, as our Savior, as Christians, as followers of him, we should be a people marked by agreeing with God about our sin. Not just once at one time, but time and time and time again, as we're being sanctified, as our minds are being renewed, as we have this communication with God of, oh, that was sin against you. Help me not to do that again, Lord. Please forgive me. And immediately, forgiveness is given to us. Why? Because we confessed? It's easy to draw that conclusion if you just pull out these couple verses from Psalms. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Boom, there you have it. We have to confess our transgressions to the Lord, or else you will not be forgiven. I've heard that said before. There are practices, even in Christian circles, that revolve around, revolve around that. Thankfully, though, we have some extra information. See, Psalm 32 is actually quoted elsewhere in Scripture. It's quoted in Romans 4. So go ahead and flip over to Romans 4. We're going to linger here for a couple minutes. Are you there? Romans 4, we're going to start right at the beginning of the chapter. And this is just once again, this is God's kindness. Because I didn't know when I was going to be preaching Psalm 32. But here we are preaching Psalm 32, and we've just been talking about Abraham. We've been in Genesis. This, Paul's going to be talking about Genesis 15 and Abraham. So put on your full, you know, multi-Sunday what we've been learning about in Genesis. And we're going to bring that into this morning as Paul is talking in Romans. Paul is really right now in, in chapter 4. He's in the throes of his argument of we are saved by faith, not by Right. We're saved by faith, not by works. And Paul is really driving this point home. He's giving evidence, he's making an argument, and he's making it very clear that believers in Jesus Christ are saved by faith, are saved by belief, not by anything that we've done, not by anything we've accomplished, not by obeying the law. And so to make his point, he starts right in verse 1 with talking about Abraham. So he brings Abraham into his argument, and he says, "'What then shall we say was gained by Abraham?' our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? This comes from Genesis 15. This should be familiar to us. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Basically, Paul is asking rhetorically, was Abraham saved because of what he did, or was Abraham saved because he believed? And to answer his own question, he goes to Genesis 15 and says, matter-of-factly, that Abraham believed God, and that's why God counted him as righteous. He fills out this argument in verse 4. Paul's continuing to build this. Verse 4, he says, now, to the one who works... His wages are counted as a gift, or sorry, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
This picture here makes perfect sense to us. I go to work, I do my job, I punch in, I punch out, I get my paycheck. When I get my paycheck, I don't go to my employer and be, wow, thank you for your generous gift. That I didn't deserve that. No, I earned that paycheck, right? I went to work, I accomplished what they had told me to do, and as agreed upon, they gave me my due. But Paul makes it clear that's not what he's talking about here for the one that is saved. He says in verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, it's nothing that we have done. It's faith that God counts as righteousness, not as doing things, not as works. And then Paul brings in Psalm 32, verse 6. This is what Paul says. And listen to what he explains about Psalm 32. He's going to give us a little extra information here, so... Listen up. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul tells us whom David is talking about. What the state of the person whose sins are forgiven How he got his sins forgiven. Paul tells us. Paul says, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he uses Psalm 32 to support that. That the person that is happy whose sins are forgiven is the person who did not work but had faith. The person that God granted righteousness when they didn't do anything. Paul uses Psalm 32 to make that point and says that's who David is talking about. David in Psalm 32 is describing a person, the happy person, whose sins are forgiven apart from anything they have done. And if that person's sins are forgiven apart from anything they have done, then could it be a result of their confession? It couldn't be. It goes against everything Paul is using to support his argument. We can't read Psalm 32 and say, if I confess, then I will be forgiven. If I don't confess, then I can't be forgiven. Sinner, our sins are forgiven by Jesus when he died on the cross. He made us justified at that moment, right? Remember, our record of debt was cast aside and nailed to the cross. Our forgiveness cannot be contingent upon something we do, like confession, So that's not what David is talking about. David confessed his sins and he immediately felt forgiveness. Maybe God's heaviness of his hand was immediately released. I don't know. But what is clear is that David immediately experienced the assurance of his forgiveness. David right away knew that he was forgiven. And how? I have no idea. (laughs) Other than to say, I guess that was the Holy Spirit. I don't think David saw with what the same clarity that we can see now that Jesus paid for my sins, and that's why God forgave me. I'm guessing David's, I don't know how God could just forgive my sin, but I know he did. David knows that God did forgive his sin. There's no doubt about that. David's confession was immediately met with canceled, forgiven, removed, cast aside. David was forgiven, and he felt that, and he knew that when he confessed his sin that was hidden, that he was trying to keep secret that he was trying to conceal. And as an aside, I think we can also remember from this example that David 
it seems like this act is now done. He has confessed his sin, he feels the forgiveness, and now he's happy. As opposed to David confesses his sin, and then a little later that day confesses it again because he felt really bad, and then a little later confesses it again. The idea here is that David is hiding something, concealing it, trying to hold his sin in, it's destroying him. But then David agrees with God, because God already knows, and says, the sin I've been trying to hide, I, it's actually before you, God. I, I don't want to lie about it anymore. I want to be honest about my sin was sin. What I did, X, Y, Z, it was against you. And I'm sorry for it. I don't want to do it anymore. It was against you, God. And now it's cast aside. David is forgiven. It doesn't come up time and time and time again. As I was studying this, I kind of thought about this like in three steps or phases or categories that was helpful for me. I apologize. I didn't make a slide for this, but if this is helpful, you can kind of jot it down in terms of like an order of sense to make sure I was thinking about this right. Number one, God forgave the believers when Jesus died on the cross. God has forgiven the believers when Jesus died on the cross because Jesus paid for our sin on the cross. But number two, believers confess their sins. Believers are free to confess their sins. And then number three, believers have assurance to receive forgiveness because their sin has been paid for. You see, confession is something believers get to do in joy because when we confess, we're immediately hit with the tidal wave of forgiveness. We get to experience God's forgiveness every time we confess. We get that refresh of happiness every time we agree with God that we're sinners and immediately recognize and feel and are comforted that we are, in fact, forgiven children of God whose debts have been paid. Christ Church, if we get this backwards, we will not be happy. We won't be. We can't be. Can you imagine if you felt that every sin you committed, you had to confess in order to be right with God, in order for him to give you forgiveness? You wouldn't be the person that David's talking about in Psalm 32. You would be an anxious, miserable, nervous person who spends all their time frantically trying to recall every sin that we did. And if you tried to do that, would you be able to save yourself? Would you ever be able to cover it? Would there be sins that you didn't even know you committed? Yeah. You would not be happy. You could not be happy. We are happy when we confess because we have assurance that our sins are forgiven, church. Not because we have confessed them. Confession is actually part of our grow mission. Just to kind of throw another category at you. I don't know if you think about it that way. Confession is something that we get to be a part of as we are being sanctified. It's something we get to grow in as we continue to acknowledge to God that we are sinners, even specifically agree with God about sin we have committed, well, as soon as we expose that sin, it makes us not want to do that sin as much anymore. It's no longer hidden and secret and kind of a pet thing. It's now out in the open before God as, this is the sin I've committed against you. And now next time when I'm presented with that sin, do you think I want to do it just as much? No, I remember that before God, I agreed with him that this was sin. I think our confession is a way that God works in our lives to bring us closer to him, to bring us more like Jesus, to sanctify us. Degrees and degrees and degrees of glory because we're becoming more like God and acknowledging sin as sin. 
God's the one that can do that perfectly, right? God knows what sin is. And when we're agreeing with God, now we are saying we know what sin is too. And we experience his forgiveness every time. This is a blessing for believers. This is good news for us. This is something we get to do, not something we have to do. We should be teaching our children that this is a blessing that you get to do. If you are found in Jesus, if he is your savior, then you're forgiven. And you know what you get to do? You get to confess your sins and be freed from them time and time and time again. And do them less and less and less because now you agree that they are in fact sin. All right, let's move on to verse 6. Really made this message easy for me because God tells us exactly what we're supposed to do. So I don't have to try to draw out any great deep thought here. Verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Basically, David's saying, in light of the example I just gave you, the story from my own life, therefore, confess your sins to God. Pray to him. Talk to him. He is accessible. He is available to you right now. Go right now and confess your sins to him. Don't try to hide it like I did. Learn from me. Learn from the example I just told you. And then... As almost like he's just writing and can't help himself, then he just continues to flow into the blessings that the forgiven person has. That person that's happy because they're forgiven, well, guess what? They also have more reasons to be happy. They are preserved from trouble. God is a hiding place for us. We're protected from judgment. We are assured that we will not bear the wrath of God. We're protected in him. We're surrounded by him. We are found in him. We are, verse 7, delivered. Shouts of deliverance, like victory, is ours. The forgiven person is indeed very, very happy. And I think in confessing sin, this could also be uh, a spot for us to involve one another in our lives too. Certainly we can confess to one another, and that's a sermon for a different time. In fact, we've been in there in James in the past. But I even think just us being open about us confessing sin to God is part of community as well. You see, when we agree with God that our sin is sin, then it's not covered up anymore. We don't have shame. We don't have something we have to hide and keep in secret. And so we can talk with one another about that. We can share that we've been freed from this burden of sin that has drugged me down for the last 10 years, or that yesterday I was condemned and felt shame, but now I'm freed because I confess to God. That's something we get to enjoy together as well. We don't have to just keep it stovepiped and just, it's just me and God and no one else gets to come in or hear about it. It's a blessing for believers. It's a blessing that causes joy and happiness and gladness in our hearts. So we can do that together. We can share in the joy of having our sins forgiven time and time again as believers together in community for God's glory. Lastly, verses 8, 9, and 10. I love this part. It's like David seems to look up from the page and he's like he's talking directly to us. 
It's like he's written the lesson. You can almost think of like a coach. You just gave like a great example of from his younger years, you do this play or something, or a teacher in a classroom that just gave the object lesson, or a dad who just went through a lesson with his children. It's like now David looks up and says, I'm going to talk to you about the lesson now. You heard the lesson. You heard the story. You know what the moral is. Now I'm going to speak to you and talk to you. I'm just heart to heart. And David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved by bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. It's like David is saying, so do what I'm telling you. Listen to the painful example from my own life. Don't do what I did. Don't try to hide your sin. You see God's heart speaking to us here. Listen to the lesson. I don't know if anyone here has worked on a farm before, maybe has had pets. Does this picture help you, though, at all? Don't be like an animal without understanding. I couldn't help but think of, anyone seen the movie Moana? The animated kids movie, Moana? A couple people? Yeah. Do you guys remember when Moana's out on her raft? I think it's like toward the beginning of it. And she discovers that that little pet chicken is there. What's his name? Hey, hey. Yeah, hey, hey. He's kind of like this like goofy looking chicken. His eyes don't even look in the same direction or whatever. Poor thing has no clue really what's going on. And he's out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on this little raft. She discovers he's there and sits him out. Hey, look, you're here. That's great. And what does he do? He walks right off the edge of the raft. <laughs> and she has to hurry and rush over and grab him and sets him back up on the raft. She's like, whoo, boy, yeah, that was terrible. Hey, hey, you got to stay here, whatever. And it's like, he seems like he gets it. And then she turns and does something else. And he just clunk, falls right off into the water. And he does it time again until she finally opens up a box or the compartment and just shoves him in and closes it. Why? Because he doesn't have understanding. I think the picture here is not necessarily of a stubborn horse or mule, I think it's an animal that can't understand the lesson. And because it can't understand the lesson, because it doesn't understand that it should stay here or don't walk off the raft, it has to be physically constrained with a bit and with a bridle. And it's like David saying, hear the lesson. He's almost like appealing to our understanding, to our intellect. I've taught you a principle. I've given you an example of it. And now I'm appealing with you to your heart. So do it. Be happy. Experience God's forgiveness. Don't hide your sin. Confess it. And in saying so, I think there's also a warning for us as well. If you don't heed this lesson, if you don't learn for what my example is and what I'm teaching you, then there will be many sorrows for you. You too may have your strength sapped and God's hand heavy upon you for trying to conceal your sin. Church, may we heed this warning. May we believe it and see it and not be like an animal that doesn't have understanding, that has to be physically restrained. May we learn from David. May we learn from God who shared and preserved and kept this word for us this morning. May we hear the lesson and say, yes, I am forgiven and I am so happy that I am forgiven, eternally happy that I am forgiven. 
And I don't want to hold on to my sin, to hide it, to keep it, to make it silent, where I require discipline from the Lord in order for it to be revealed. I want to experience the joy and the happiness of proclaiming to God that I am a sinner and I have sinned. May we be a church that agrees with God about our sin instead of lying to God about our sin. And that brings us to verse 11. To sum it all up, David says this, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Point number four is rejoicing expresses happiness. Rejoicing expresses our happiness. David closes this psalm. This song, if we were singing it, it would be a great refrain at the end to sing in light of what we have just heard. The truth of who God is, the forgiveness that he offers, sin that doesn't have to be held on to, that's self-destructive. We should be a people that is indeed very, very happy, that is glad in the Lord, that rejoices in the Lord, that shouts and sings for joy. That should mark us, Christ Church, because we have been freed. I have a summary statement like this. I'm sure you can think of one that's better. But this was helpful for me. Supernatural happiness comes when I confess my sin to God because he has already forgiven my sin through Jesus. Supernatural happiness comes when I confess my sin to God because he has already forgiven my sin through Jesus. We get to be honest about our sin. We get to have assurance. We get to be happy. As Christians, we get to be happy. And God wants us to be happy in him and the forgiveness that he has given us. Well, we're going to spend a couple minutes as we close reflecting as we have before, considering application from Psalm 32. And I would encourage you this morning during that time, use it as an opportunity to talk to the Lord, to ask him if there's sin that needs to be confessed, if there's sin that you're hiding, that's destroying you. Maybe even think through the first, the four points that we have and pray through those. Forgiveness produces happiness, so we can celebrate in that. Recognizing deceit steals happiness. Confession releases happiness, and rejoicing expresses happiness. And number four, we're going to sing a couple songs in just a couple minutes, and I hope, Christ Church, that we can sing with rejoicing and with gladness, because we are indeed happy. So let's just spend a couple minutes together reflecting on Psalm 32 and what God would be speaking to us. God, I pray that you would speak to us. God, I ask you that you would reveal sin to us that we are, that we're trying to hide, that we're trying to not acknowledge or to cover. Lord, may we experience the joy and the happiness that comes from your forgiveness that you give to us apart from works, all because of you, Jesus. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe this, to believe this more and more. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to experience this. Lord, I pray that maybe even like David, that we would be able to look back or to proclaim to others, I confessed my sin and immediately my sins were forgiven. Oh God, may we be a church that is happy, happy in you, happy because our sins are forgiven, happy because we are no longer under sin. We love you, Lord. We exist for you. We are glad and happy in you. Keep us from chasing other things. Keep us from trying to conceal or control, but instead to be open and agree with you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.